this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Rick from Monero. People on crypto Twitter and within the ecosystem know him as Fluffy Pony. Um, we did not talk about the reason and the name and the history behind that, but we did talk a lot about Monero and we talked a lot about privacy. And I love this. This is a little bit of a dated quote from Rick, but I thought it was really interesting. He said that despite what many regulators think, mandatory privacy is not anti-government or anti-regulation or anti-disclosure. Mandatory privacy means that the user is granted the ability to have control over who gets to see that data. So with that, we kind of jumped into a really long conversation about what Monero is. And for those that don't know, you can go on CoinMarketCap or some of the other sources out there. It is one of the more popular uh, coins out there. I think it's uh, over a billion dollar market cap today. And so a lot of people have been very attracted to Monero because of the privacy components of it. So we talked about things like ring signatures and ring CT and stealth addresses. And we talked a lot about the history that is involved in some of that technology. And it goes back to uh, the days of about 2000, 2001. So we also talked about transaction speeds and we talked about some of the use cases for XMR. It was a great conversation. You're going to really learn a lot about Monero and about why it is uh, in many people's minds really an important project and really an important uh, aspect of the overall ecosystem within crypto and digital assets. So remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice, so please do your own research. On the flip side, you're going to hear the conversation with Rick. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of base layer. I have Rick from Monero, the lead maintainer. Rick is known to many people in the industry, but this is going outside of the industry, so this is going to be a great conversation. Monero is something that is really interesting. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about privacy, and so Monero is one of the top coins out there with, I believe, over a billion-dollar market cap, um, and a lot of people have been paying attention to it, especially, I think this is really a great time to talk and have this conversation, Rick. Over 100 million uh, client uh, user uh, data was just hacked from a big bank here in the States. And uh, I think, you know, talking about privacy and people's data is going to be really important. So, Rick, if you could, uh, what we like to do from the top of the show is just getting to know you a little bit more from your personal background in the space. Uh, kind of what got you into it. We don't need to know the kind of proverbial when Bitcoin moment. But, you know, what I like to focus in on is kind of what about the technology got you inspired and said, this is where I'm going to spend hopefully the rest, the rest of my life building and supporting and, you know, kind of really just kind of getting people to know about it. So what about it kind of got you into it and kind of just give us a little bit of a background about yourself? Cool. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, I uh, got involved with Bitcoin in early 2011. Um, I had started an import-export business uh, with my wife that uh, eventually got to a point where I was non-operational and had a, a bunch of time to apply to different things. Um, and I I was sort of peripherally aware of Bitcoin, but, um, you know, like any emerging technology, I sort of thought, well, 
it's interesting, but I don't know if it's going to be anything. Um, and I remember reading um, early 2011 about uh, this ex-Google engineer um, who had written a Bitcoin library. And I was like, well, if a Google engineer finds it interesting, then, you know, there's possibly something there. And that was sort of the trigger point that made me dig into it a bit. Um, and it made me sort of really want to um, uh, investigate the technology and uh, try and figure out what there was to it. Um, so it started off with uh, with mining, which I think a lot of people do because they sort of view it as, uh, um, as uh, free money, which it isn't, of course. But in my naivety, I thought, well, you know, let's take a look at that. Um, and at the same time, I was also sort of, I, I remain unconvinced that Bitcoin's consensus mechanism was robust. And so I also spent a lot of time trying to break the consensus mechanism. I was particularly interested in um, civil attacks and uh, ways to thwart the consensus mechanism. Mm. Um, what those two things gave me was a thing of just how cutthroat the the mining um, industry would eventually become um to, you know which of course is a good thing because uh bitcoin mining and, and cryptocurrency mining in general is designed to appeal to um to to our basest greed you know mm -hmm. the the idea mm -hmm. that we can that that uh, that capitalism um capitalism works and that uh, that that you can sort of you know pitch up with your GPU or whatever hardware you have and uh, start churning out money, um, and so that those were very interesting aspects of the technology that in my my sort of infancy um, and uh, earliest exposure to the technology really interested me. Hmm. Yeah, the thing about this space for people that are learning about it is that there's a trigger point. There's something that says, "Wow, I'm 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 in. I'm just that's it. That's this is what I'm going to be doing. This is where I'm going to go." And for me, it was kind of the differentials between decentralized distributed systems from a security standpoint, and then also versus centralized systems. And as I said again, with the bank here that just had 100 million uh, user files hacked. You know, I think we're we're seeing that play out. We see it play out so much over and over again. But let's we'll talk. We want to. I want to talk about data and privacy because this is really important for Monero. But before we do that, so people can get a very brief one to two minute primer on what Monero is, if you could just give us that. Sure. So um, Monero is a privacy focused um, cryptocurrency. Um, the uh, it's not based on Bitcoin's code, so. That already gives it sort of um, a bit of a unique flavor that it's its own code base. Um, at the same time, it does share a lot of uh, conceptual similarities with Bitcoin. It has transaction inputs and outputs. It's proof of work, so you mine it. Um, you know, there's a lot of similarities from that perspective. Uh, but, you know, not sharing code with Bitcoin means that, um, that there's a lot that can be done differently. Not for the sake of doing it differently, but you know, with a particular goal in mind, which in this case is uh, enhanced uh, user privacy. So with Bitcoin, all transactions are private by default. Um, that does not mean that you um, can't have transactions that are not private. It just means that um, you have to 
actively uh, opt out of privacy of the privacy if you want to. Mm-hmm. And you know, there certainly are. I mean, there are people that have a need to opt out of privacy out of the privacy that Monero provides. But um, by and large, the system continues to um, add privacy to everyone uh, to everyone's transactions. Instead of the opposite, where if you have a system that is not private by default, then um, it continues to detract and uh, and destroy privacy as people move into the the traceable public system. Right, um, right. So so this uh, privacy private by default thing is very important as respects Monero. Yeah, I think that we'll get into this you know later that you know there's this notion that Bitcoin is anonymous, which is false. Obviously, it's pseudonymous. You know that it, you know it can't be traced, and as we've seen here in the U.S. again, so some of the politicians have said, well, drug dealers and traffickers and all sorts of nefarious things happen with Bitcoin and blah blah blah. But at the end of the day, we've also seen regulators and the DEA say, hey, we actually like this because we can track it better than the U.S. dollar. So we'll talk all about that. But I really, before we get into the kind of the nuts and bolts, and we start talking about things like ring signatures and you know, all sorts of kind of stealth addresses that are kind of components of Monero. I want to talk about this because I love this quote. Um, and this is a little dated, but I think it's still kind of germane to the conversation. It's from our friends at the block. So it says, you said that despite what many regulators think, mandatory privacy is not anti-government or anti-regulation or anti-disclosure. Mandatory privacy simply means that the user is granted the ability to have control over who gets to see the data, but I love that. When, in your opinion, you know, from what we're talking about, do you think that we forgot this? When did that become, you know, <laughs> I know you had a funny uh, kind of, you know, analogy with bathroom doors. When did we? When do you think we forgot about this? And you know, with the with the the age of Google and all the apps that we get for free, air quotes. You know, as I've said millions of times on the show, you know, when it's free, we were effectively the product and they're mining everything. They know where we are. They know where we're traveling. They know what we're buying. You know, how hard do you think it's really going to be to crack that, you know, in terms of freeing ourselves from the shackles of free? So, you know, first question is kind of when do you think we forgot what privacy really meant in this day and age? And then how do we break away from the shackles of this kind of free service that mines all of our data? Yeah, I think um, if you read like uh, George Orwell's seminal novel, 1984, then um, he he paints this like really bleak picture of a future where um, a government has eyes and ears in our house and you know, it, it's very easy to read that and go like, oh man, that's a, that is a terrible world that I don't want to live in. And yet, somehow, I, and I don't actually understand um, why we've ended up doing this, but somehow we, we have begun to value convenience so much that we have created George Orwell's 1984, not by government sticking eyes and ears in our house, but by us putting eyes and ears in our house. And calling them Alexa and uh, and Hey Google, um, and being completely fine with those listening devices being in our house, because hey, it's at least not the government that's got access to it. It's you know big tech, and they surely won't like do anything to hurt to hurt us or to harm us. Um, and that's just it's crazy that we've ended up. Um, 
uh, in a world like that because we have been so exposed to failures of big tech to secure their data um, over you know the past few decades. Um, we've all had our, our uh, pr- uh, personal, personally identifiable information leaked um, in large-scale hacks, and yet we just we're just suckers for punishment. We're just gluttons for punishment. We we just put all the stuff in our house and go, it'll be totally fine. Nothing can go wrong. Um, and uh, and we post our, our deepest, most intimate personal pictures up um, on free services where, as you just mentioned, we're the product. And then we're surprised when that data is abused, either to profile us or abused by somebody else that gains access to our information uh, or to our account and then gains access to extremely privileged, extremely sensitive information. Um, and it's not just individuals, it's corporations who, again, you'd think would know better, um, that are that, that do the most absurd things. Um, I, I was reading uh, something the other day about um, a, a company that prided itself on their security and how tight their security was. And uh, all of the, the security cameras that they had um, all over the outside and inside of their building. And so they hired a company, a security company, to uh, do a pen test, a penetration test, to see if they could gain access to the network. And so, you know, day zero, and uh, these guys are sort of sitting outside in their car, scoping out the place, trying to connect to, to the Wi-Fi infrastructure, which is pretty solidly locked down. And then they see the cameras, and um, you know, there's cameras like all even on the on the outskirts, like on the fence and that. And uh, they sort of they identify a, a spot where a blind spot where they can get close to the one camera. Um, it, it, they can't get over the wall because there's beams and cameras and all that, but they can get close enough to the camera. Mm-hmm. And they get to the camera and uh, sort of you know put a little stool up and climb up, and uh, they've now got physical access to the camera. And there's a network cable plugged into the camera, which powers it and also provides the the video feed. And so, as can be expected, they just popped that popped that cable out, popped it into their laptop, and boom, they had access to privileged access to the entire network, um, even deeper access than they would have had if they'd uh, been able to to get into the Wi-Fi because the Wi-Fi was on its own VLAN and very and well segmented. But oh. someone had gotten lazy and not segmented the the video the cameras off because you know the bosses prided themselves on the cameras and wanted to be able to to monitor them um, whilst they were at the office. And it's it's like you know it it's it's such a when you say it you're like oh wow that's such an obvious thing. If I were setting up the cameras, I would never have made that mistake. But you know the the people that work for them, the people that set up those cameras, uh, the people that set up the network. Um, they're not stupid people. They're not. Uh, they're, they're smart technical people, right. and yet they made what I would consider a straight-up amateur move in terms of securing that network and securing that data. That I, I think the word is complacency. You know, everyone. Yeah. Th- I think everyone thinks that they're smarter than the other person next to them, but it, it leads to complacency. And so that is an amazing story. Wow. 
All right, let's get more into specifics about privacy and about what you guys have. So most existing cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin and Ethereum, have transparent blockchains. Let's talk about that. Meaning that transactions are openly verifiable and traceable by anyone in the world. Again, this is a distinction that I think a lot of people who are just getting into this world don't necessarily understand. Furthermore, sending and receiving addresses for these transactions may potentially be linkable to a person's real-world identity. And we've just seen that here in the States. The IRS just sent out 10,000 letters to people who uh, purchased Bitcoin off of Coinbase over the last you know two or three years. So that's really interesting. Um, so let's talk about that. What's the difference here between what Monero has and what's this? You know, there's this difference between synonymous and anonymous. Um, and I know it gets a little 101 here, but... You know, I think there are, are things that you guys have done in terms of crypto note and other kind of components that really alter the the chain itself and the way that it's designed to make it more secure. So before we get into kind of the, the ring kind of signatures and architecture there, you know, you know, talk to us a little bit more about what you've known from the past, you know, five or six, seven years in this space. You know, the difference here between, you know, what we think Bitcoin and Ethereum is in terms of being private and anonymous versus what it actually is. Sure. So I think um, being pseudonymous means that there is ultimately um, a way to, to group your activity together. You know, so if you think about an author that writes novels and uses a pseudonym, they use the same pseudonym for all the novels they write. And so you're able to know, without knowing the person's real identity, you're able to know that they wrote all these books. Um, and, and just like with that, ultimately people betray themselves. So, you know, you've got an author who um, pseudonymously pens a, a political essay. Um, it's possible, and in fact, nowadays with machine learning, kind of trivial, to um, perform stylistic analysis and be able to determine who the real author is. And, and uh, that's, of course, exactly how, what happens with Bitcoin. So Bitcoin, Bitcoin's pseudonym, uh, pseudonymity is pretty solid because if nobody knows your Bitcoin address and you're transacting with yourself, then there's, very, there's no real information that's leaking because you're just sending money to yourself and you know your addresses, but no one else does. Of course, that's how anyone uses Bitcoin. So people deposit money on an exchange and then regardless of what they've done uh, prior to that, suddenly there's this little bit, there's this little piece of information that, is, that leaks, that links uh, all of their previous pseudonymous transactions to their real-world identity. Um, and that's really why pseudonymity um, uh, in a system like Bitcoin doesn't uh, really work. Um, that's not to say that, that Monero provides some sort of magic bullet. Um, Monero can also be used pseudonymously. Um, you know, if you go and make a Monero transaction and post the details up on Facebook, well... You know, there's not really anything the, the protocol can do to prevent you from doing that. Um, so Monero provides um, privacy. And, and I, I'm always hesitant to say Monero provides anonymity because I don't believe technology can do that. Um, 
technology can provide a a platform where you can use it anonymously like you can use twitter anonymously um but that do- certainly doesn't mean that um uh, that you can't ever be identified um with uh, if you're using twitter anonymously um you know you might mess up and connect from the a coffee shop wi-fi and uh, end up getting uh, identified that way um so Anonymity requires, in, in my mind at any rate, anonymity requires um, operational security. It requires a great deal of effort to, um, to, to take a system that gives you um, pseudonymous use and then also make sure that you are absolutely under um, every circumstance not leaking um, information that could lead to you being identified. Um, so, so Monero is really focused on, uh, instead of being focused on providing tools for anonymity, it's focused on just providing the tools to enhance your transactional privacy. Right. So let's talk. So from your FAQ, uh, which is great. Um, this is really interesting when you think about it. So Monero uses three different privacy technologies, ring signatures, ring confidential transactions, ring CT, and stealth addresses. I want you to address each one of those, but these effectively hide the sender amount and receiver in the transaction respectively. So I'm curious how that happens, but this is where it's interesting. So ring signatures were invented by Ron Rivest, Adi Shamir, and Yael Talman, and introduced in 2001, I believe, give around that time point. So, you know, up until now, have we seen them used commercially? Um, and you know, I'm curious, you know, again, break down the signatures, the ring confidential transactions, and the stealth addresses comparable to things that we already know about, like proof of work from, you know, a Bitcoin standpoint or an Ethereum standpoint before they moved to proof of stake. You know, what kind of, if you could, you know, speaking to someone who obviously is not a technocrat or someone who has not spent 30 years, 20 years into the space, how would you define those and how would you kind of, you know, kind of isolate them? And then, you know, I really think it's, it's super interesting. This is a narrative that I've had on ongoing with the show is that a lot of the underpinning technology of Bitcoin, Ethereum, all the other ones out there, you know, a lot of that, you know, has been built and has been kind of amalgamated after 30 years of cryptographically, you know, kind of focused technology efforts. And we're seeing, obviously, with this, that in around 2001, this was kind of brought to the world. So would love your opinion, you know, kind of to break down those three different components and kind of talk about, you know, any kind of other commercial use of that technology that you know about. Sure. So um, there hasn't really been much commercial use of um of ring signatures um sadly and i think the reason for that is like a lot of cryptography out there um there is a difference between cryptography and applied cryptography um and and most cryptographic research ends up being just that just research uh, and that's not to knock the the efforts of the of the researchers and cryptographers that are inventing this stuff it's just that to to take uh, to to take the something that is effectively um, a cool idea and move it to oh this is actually in use by people all over the world is kind of a big a, a, a big deal. It requires a lot of trust and faith in the t- in the research um, and in the technology. And typically these things can take 
um, can take many, many years um, before they are even at a point where someone is willing to say, I trust this uh, with my my data. I trust this with my finances. I trust this with my life. Um, so that, that, uh, that time gap between when research is first published and when it's actually used in a production system, quite fundamental research. Obviously, smaller improvements can can be vetted much faster. Um, you know, uh, iterative, small iterative improvements can be vetted much faster. But something that's like kind of mind blowing, like a ring, like ring signatures, need like 10, 15 years before. Um, uh, anyone's at a level of comfort where they can say, okay, we're willing to put this into a production system, um, knowing that it's, it's somewhat run the ringer. Um, so how this is specifically used in, in Monero, um, and, and I'm glad you sort of brought, brought up the, um, those three primary, um, pillars of privacy, if you will, um, ring signatures uh, do something that effectively protects you from revealing where your transaction is coming from. So if you think about uh, Bitcoin, if you look at a Bitcoin transaction on a block explorer, you can see the uh, previous transaction or transactions uh, that had outputs that you are now spending in this transaction. And so because of that, you can build a whole graph, you can build a tree of like, where's this transaction come from? You know, where if I go three steps back or 10 steps back or 100 steps back, I can see all of the branches, all of the tendrils um, in, in this graph to evaluate where this transaction has been and what it's touched. Now, with Monero, um, the way that the ring signatures are used is uh, – instead of going and having this obvious linkage between a previous transaction and your transaction, you instead create a ring signature. So effectively, you take a look at the blockchain as a whole, um, and you go and pick a bunch of old transactions, some old, some new, um, some in between, some very recent. Um, and then you create this ring signature of all of those transactions, all of those, uh, those transaction outputs, including the output that you're actually spending. Now, this doesn't require interactivity. You don't need someone who created a transaction four years ago to pitch up and be online. Uh, you're able to do this just with the public keys of the transaction, and that's really um, uh, one of the fundamental things that ring signatures enable um, is being able to do this without interactivity. And you go and create this transaction, and then if anyone goes and looks at it on the Block Explorer, they go, well, this transaction came from one of a number of um, old and new transactions, and I can't tell which one is the real um, output that's been spent. I can't tell who is the real signer. Now, a, a preface here is I consider this, and, and the Monero community considers this, the weakest aspect of Monero's privacy. Um, and the reason is because the uh, ring signature technology is fantastic, robust, great, all of that. But choosing which transactions you want to include in your ring signature, that is extremely difficult because people's spending habits are weird. So some people will, and, and this turns out there are a lot of people that do this, they will receive funds 
um, in their wallet and very quickly go and spend them. And other people will go, well, you know, I'm hodling for life and I'm going to, you know, put this in cold storage. And so then they won't spend it but uh, for a long time. And then suddenly after, you know, a few years, they'll pitch up and uh, want to spend some of it. And so it's almost impossible to create a perfect or to have a perfect output selection where you're able to really just perfectly match people's spending habits. So instead we've had to over the years try and improve the output selection algorithm to best match what people commonly do. Um, but even that is difficult. So there are, um, there are ways that you can attack this by guessing that the, the, there's a high probability that the most recent output is, um, the real one. It's not a, it's not a guess in, I mean, it's not a, not an accurate data point. Like it definitely is the most recent one, but you can make a guess and you can, you know, apply some, uh, some heuristics to this and, and try and make an educated guess about transaction flow. That said, um, because it is, you know, whether the, the real signer of the transaction is the most recent output or not is unknowable, um, at least, you know, from a sort of public blockchain explorer uh, perspective, um, all that you can really do is guess. So whilst this does, prov uh, you know, and, and we sort of openly admit that this is what we consider to be the weakest part of Monero's privacy, it still is extremely strong privacy, um, relatively speaking. And uh, it also does provide you with um, uh, something where you, you effectively are able to have um, like, you know, someone might suspect that you were responsible for that transaction, um, but they can't prove that you were responsible for that transaction. Um, so you have plausible deniability. And I think that plausible deniability in, in this case is uh, strong enough privacy um, for, for most people. Um, so that's, that's ring signatures. It hides where the transaction's coming from. Two other aspects. The one is uh, stealth addresses. That hides where transactions are going to. So in Bitcoin, if you go on a, block, a blockchain explorer, you look at a transaction, same for Ethereum, you can see the address that a transaction is going to. Now with Monero, you can't. You see um, a basically like a 64-character hexadecimal string, which represents destination that it's going to. But even, even if within, the same, within a single transaction, there were multiple outputs going to the same person, to the same address, that destination, the, the, that uh, hexadecimal, um, 64 hexadecimal characters, would be different for each of those outputs. Um, so that's really powerful. I mean, it's basically like encrypting your address, mm -hmm. and no one's mm -hmm. able to decrypt that. Um, then the third pillar is Ring CT, which is Ring Confidential Transactions. So this is um, based on Greg Maxwell's confidential transactions, and it uh, is basically modified to work with Monero's ring signatures um, and uh, with some uh, additions and some changes and improvements, or what we think are improvements. And the idea is that um, instead of there being a, uh, an amount for, that you can see that's being transacted, that you, we use something called cryptographic commitments, and this hides um, the actual amount. And so this is very powerful because, again, it's like encrypting the amount that's being transacted. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine for, for, you know, an obvious privacy need is 
I don't want anyone to know how much money I have in my wallet. If I go to an ATM, I don't want people to know that I just withdrew $1,000 because they might then um, go and hit, beat me over the head with a, a mallet until I give them the $1,000. Right. And so it's right. the same with, uh, with you know, this privacy aspect of Monero. If you go and withdraw money from an exchange, no one that's looking at the Block Explorer can uh, figure out that you withdrew or how much you withdrew. You might have withdrawn the equivalent of 10 cents. You might have withdrawn $10 million. No one can tell. Yeah, I think the we've had the conversation on the show about Patterson commitments. Um, and so, you know, kind of this notion that you have the number 240 and then you have two variables. So they're supposed to be multiplied, but you don't know what those two variables are per se, but you know what the amount is at the end of the day. And then you kind of inverse that. So there's always this kind of component, kind of component to the commitment side from my understanding that there's obviously, as you alluded to, there's, you know, some sort of a transaction, but the elements inside the transaction are kind of hidden and kind of kept secret. So that's kind of interesting. Um, and, and it's something that I don't think a lot of people, uh, really appreciate at this point in time. But I think with, as I said, at the top of the show, I think we're getting to a point in society where we're starting to care more about privacy, you know, with GDPR and some other efforts with the, you know, obviously the issues with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, I think people are starting to have that kind of woke period, um, to use the terminology that the crazy kids on Twitter use, the woke period. Um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, we're still, you know, we, a ways away, but I think we are starting to see reasons why people are looking at that. But let's talk about scalability. Um, you know, a favorite kind of component and topic on my show is, you know, kind of scaling. So Bitcoin has, you know, with three, three transactions per second, you know, there are attempts at layer two with lightning and state channels and hash time locks and things that are, you know, hopefully going to speed up transactions. Um, and so can you talk to us a little bit about in terms of the comparison, you know, with, you know, Monero's TPS and, you know, do you really think, is it a fair kind of, uh, benchmark to use Visa these days in terms of what their centralized services can do in terms of transactions per second? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, good questions. I think that uh, I think that transactions per second is a, is a silly metric to use because um, for a number of reasons. The first is using a blockchain is horribly inefficient. And, um, and for a lot of people, unless they have a specific need for it, it's largely pointless. So I sort of reject the idea that um, every transaction in the world, like, you know, when I go and buy my cup of coffee, that it needs to be um, on some blockchain somewhere. I mean, that just seems like a crazy way of doing things, um, especially because there's no there's no analog for that. You know, I mean, like right now, if I go to um, Starbucks and buy a cup of coffee, um, then Starbucks, like, they sort of collate a whole bunch of credit card transactions and they only bank those credit card transactions say once a day. Um, sometimes if it's for smaller merchants, they might only bank transactions like once a month. Um, and uh, then only do they get the money in their account. So it's not like in their bank account, Starbucks is seeing like, Oh, $5 50 from Ricardo, you know, they're, they're getting like a bulk amount. And so the, the analog for me is always going to be, what can we offload to more scalable mechanisms, um, call it layer two or layer three systems, 
um, and then only reflect settlements on chain. So, you know, Lightning is a great example of that, but there's other things that you can do. Uh, there's side chains and, uh, and all sorts of other mechanisms that can be used to offload um, a subset of transactions that then settle back. Um, in terms of what Monero is capable on chain, so Monero is kind of a double, double-edged sword because on the one hand, um, privacy comes at a cost, and that cost is that transactions are physically larger than Bitcoin uh, transactions. So that means that Monero has a higher cost attached to it, a higher bandwidth cost attached to it. Uh, ultimately, for the same number of transactions that Bitcoin does, it would have a higher storage cost attached to it. Um, and then the other edge of the sword is that Monero um, has a dynamic block size. So where uh, Bitcoin has a fixed block size, Monero's is able to grow dynamically on demand. Um, that, it, you know, there's quite a, uh, the algorithm's kind of restrictive in terms of how quickly it can grow and the cost of growing it. So it's not like it can grow to infinite sizes. But the idea behind that is um, that as demand increases and as technology improves and we end up with uh, faster bandwidth on average worldwide, uh, lower latency, um, you know, as storage costs decrease, then uh, Monero should be able to scale with that um, without needing to uh, have a physical sort of um, block limit that has to get uh, lifted by consensus. Um, I'm curious. Uh, so Bitcoin has a one megabyte uh, block size. Um, and with SegWit, which only about 35% of the community kind of approved, that gets it to two and a half, give or take, megabytes, correct? If, that's, if my math is right. Yeah. yeah. So with that, there's been this notion we've talked about this before. If you got to like 10 megabytes you know, for a block or 50 megabytes for a block, basically everyone in the, in the consensus kind of in the model, all the other miners out there then have to have fairly large amount of data that they are also sharing because everyone's got the same ledger and everyone's got the same data. So you're starting to have people, you're starting to have nodes have higher requirements for storage. So how does that, how do you get through that problem? Do you, is there a way to compress those, you know, those kind of blocks? Is there a way to kind of shard it out? Is there things that you can do? Uh, because it sounds like you're trying to address the, the kind of the, the, the issues, there, the limitations there. I'm just curious because it's something I've been thinking about is that, you know, you know, Bitcoin people in the community always say, okay, well, one megabyte every 10 minutes, blah, blah, blah. That's why it's 10, you know, three transactions per second. It's a security feature. Um, but then you have people saying, well, you know, we want to be able to use this as a medium of exchange. We want to be able to use this for retailing. We want to be able to have, you know, this being used to displace fiat, you know, and so it needs to be faster. So there are issues there. Um, and I, I'd be curious because you've had so much experience with that, you know, where do we find a compromise? Um, look, I, so, so I'm of the opinion that, um, that different, uh, different cryptocurrencies, different blockchains, um, will take different approaches, um, to this. And as a result, they will, uh, largely just move the trust boundaries um, around. So from a strictly uh, a strict cryptographic game theory perspective, um, one could consider Monero 
less robust than Bitcoin because of the dynamic block size limit, because there's a whole class of attacks that, that are opened up because of that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think that there's I don't think there's a, a magic bullet where you can go like, well, we've done this now and we've solved the scalability problem. You know, we've uh, it'll never will never outgrow our current capacity. There's always going to be something that someone finds that will force some restriction. I think the most important thing is um, the that that blockchain. I mean, storing a transaction on a blockchain is meant to be indefinite. You know, it's meant to live on hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of computers around the world indefinitely. And that just just naturally, if you think about that, is a horribly inefficient system. So it's not designed to displace fiat. It's not designed to um, to to take on the world's transactions. And that's why there is a definite need for um, augmentation, for additional uh, systems built on top of it. Um, that really enable um, greater scalability. And there's, there's, I, I think that uh, storage space is less of a concern because A, storage space is cheap, and B, you can run a prune node for Monero and for Bitcoin um, pretty trivially. Um, I think the bigger issue, the bigger constraint is bandwidth. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the higher your bandwidth requirements, the more you start to uh, you get to a point where you effectively prevent entire countries that's right um, that's from right. from being able to run no, uh, node for your particular uh, blockchain and that's i mean like that that really just reduces the uh, the decentralization um, mm-hmm. of uh, of that blockchain um, and increases the risk because now you go from like, haha, you can't touch us. We have nodes in 200 countries to, haha, you, you kind of can't touch us because we have nodes in 23 countries. Um, you know, it's it's not ideal. You you want to sort of keep that, the bandwidth requirement as, as low as possible while still enabling cool functionality and all the other fiddly bits um, precisely because you want uh, as many nodes to be able to operate with as many different uh, internet service providers, um, some at home, some at companies, some at data centers, you don't want to restrict um, the the type of environment that your nodes are run in. I that really that does resonate. I, I agree with that completely because there has been an issue with centralization of those kind of the nodes, and uh, I think. You hit it on the head there. So just very quickly, because when people listen to this, they may Google Monero. And if you look at some of the news, I know anything, you know, any new technology and anyone who says that technology is infallible is someone who has not obviously worked with technology. Things happen all the time. Um, You know, I think there was a great, you know, kind of thing that happened. You know, you guys identified um, a vulnerability and you paid a bounty. If you're, if you're Liberty, just to kind of, you know, briefly kind of highlight on that, because I imagine people may search out Monero, they might want to learn more. And, you know, as I said, that might be some of the first things that they see. And so just to kind of hit them off on the head before they kind of look at that for themselves. Sure. So, um, it's actually kind of, kind of funny because 
what happened there was uh, we have a, a bug bounty program through HackerOne where people can report um, uh, vulnerabilities. Um, they get evaluated and triaged, and then ultimately, um, if there's if it's an actual vulnerability, it gets patched. Uh, if the person gets a, a bug bounty um, and the reporter gets a bug bounty, and then um, uh, as soon as we're at a level of comfort that the network has largely um, uh, been patched, then uh, there's a disclosure process that we just kick in. So, you know, every few months, um, there's like normally a few things that have been disclosed that have been patched. We're at a point where we can uh they've been disclosed in like via hacker one but then they haven't been disclosed publicly but they've been patched we're comfortable that the network's upgraded and so we go and disclose them publicly um and uh there was a, a i think like you know three or four um uh bugs that were that were reported and patched like six months ago um like with a like two versions back and uh, we hit the close of the disclosure cycle, so we disclosed it. And uh, some reporter picked it up and went, oh, wow, these must have just been patched and reported on it. And then, you know, the new cycle goes from there. Um, and this is not uncommon. VLC just had an issue where um, there was a, a bug reported, uh, an exploit reported in VLC, which was like patched like six versions ago, and uh, they couldn't even reproduce their exploit. Um, and yet it became news and everyone was told to uninstall VLC. So it's, it's um, reporting on, on, uh, on InfoSec issues is still pretty sketchy. Uh, reporters tend to uh, publish based on their assertion and reading of something instead of actually going and figuring out what's going on, um, sadly. So that's not to say Monero is bug-free. We have the the um, vulnerability response program for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, it's impossible to write bug-free code. Uh, Monero will continue to have bugs. It will probably continue to have many bugs. Um, but those bugs will be identified through the help of uh, both internally and then you know as, as an open source project and also externally through researchers that pitch up and go, oh, cool, I can earn a bug bounty. I'm going to go and see if I can find a vulnerability. Um, and this process makes the software more robust um, and a lot stronger. Um, and it's the same thing that happens with your operating system. If you go and read the the number of bugs that are patched when Apple or Microsoft release an update, um, it is like, I mean, it's pages and pages of things that, that uh, have been patched, some of which are like quite devastating exploits. Um, but they get identified, they get patched, everyone upgrades, and uh, and everyone's safer because of it. And that's really, I think, a culture that we need to encourage, a culture of identifying these issues, fixing them, and moving on, and not shaming a, a piece of open source software for patching its bugs. Amen. I love it. Um, before we get to a little bit more about you, um, you know, just curious, you guys list places where holders of XMR can actually go and use it. Um, you know, what are the efforts? You know, there. You know, are you starting to see some more mainstream, I air quotes, mainstream adoption? You know, we just saw you know Flexa and we saw Lolly just work with a big supermarket chain here, Safeway. We're starting to see some other use cases. Are you starting to see more retailers and more, as I said, mainstream places where people can start using XMR? 
Um, yeah, I think that there's there's definitely um, starting to to be some interest, um, and I'm I'm kind of grateful for the efforts of companies like Apple to to just highlight the need for privacy. They've started to take quite a a strong pri- pro privacy stance, um, almost as a as a feature, as like a unique identifying feature of their devices. Um, and I think as that continues, we're going to see a lot more interest in privacy enhancing technologies from um, organizations. Um, and we're going to see, we're going to start to see more and more pickup. I mean, there's, you know, the obvious ones are like VPNs and, um, and services like that, where they, a lot of them um, do already allow for uh, Monero purchases and so on. Um, but yeah, definitely in future, I'd like to see more um, goods and services. Um, and uh, we've seen quite a quite a good pickup um, amongst the uh, the music industry. Mm. So um, mm. something called Project Coral Reef, which was a project to go and uh, that still exists, um, but its main job was to go and sort of um, educate uh, people in various industries about uh, Monero and about why privacy is important. Um, and there were, there were a bunch of musicians, um, everyone from like Slayer and Ghost through to um, Mariah Carey and the Backstreet Boys that wow. accept Monero on their, um, their online merch stores. Um, wow. And if, wow. you, if you go to, I think it's projectcoralreef.com, there's a bunch of merchants uh, there, largely musicians, who, um, who accept Monero and are uh, excited about it. So one other quick question. So you guys, if you go to getmonero.org slash design goals, uh, design slash goals, um, you guys talk about your kind of roadmap and what's coming up late uh, in the next few months, the next year or so. Is there anything on there that you wanted to highlight? Do you think that's really going to be something that a lot of people should be paying attention to? I think, um, you know, I mean, like those design goals are—they're—they're they're a moving target. Um, you know, every day there's a <laughs> there's a new thing that someone's doing that's cool. Um, there's a lot of really cool stuff that's being done um, within the Monero Research Lab. A lot of uh, really interesting um, research that that uh, would improve Monero's privacy or scalability or whatever. And I think really that that's the Monero is like a a. a puppy that just doesn't rest you know it's got so much energy um and that's really the best place to be in because uh no one in the monero community believes that monero has achieved its goals um there's just more work to be done and that's uh i I think it's a a very mature and uh and and um, pragmatic approach to take because the reality is that privacy is not a state that you achieve you don't go like, well, okay, cool. We've achieved privacy with this technology. We can all part ways now and, you know, never update the software. Um, there's constant effort. There's constant uh, effort from attackers. So there has to be constant effort from uh, from the project to improve and to make sure that it's, you know, the, the privacy enhancing aspects are more robust and uh, better equipped to deal with potential attack. So it's um, it really is just a moving target and a constant drumbeat of uh, of changes and improvements that I think um, 
will eventually uh, lead to um, a project that is even more useful than Monero is right now. Great. Well, that was a very good overview of things that are happening in Monero. Now let's get to know you a little bit better. So if anyone who's listened to the show, they know that I like to delve into two aspects. Um, Hopefully you get time to actually read and not just crypto-related reading and not just crypto Twitter. Um, By the way, anyone who wants to know, Rick is very well uh, kind of sought after. Um, And uh, on occasion, I've seen him posting with his acronym Fluffy Pony. So definitely check him out there. Uh, Really good thoughts that he shares a lot of the time and much more of a pragmatist. There were people out there who were really into this tribalism kind of of feature these days. And I, I really appreciate that Rick is not um and so i also really appreciate rick for coming on the show because i a few months ago said hey does anyone want to actually help educate family offices and institutional investors about some of their projects and i uh kind of put it out there for folks in monero and ethereum and others out there and rick was literally the first person to reply within about two minutes so you get the extra special hanukkah kwanzaa christmas card this coming year So there you go. Um, so the two things that we like to focus on on reading. So anything that you've read recently, um, it could be crypto, non-crypto related, it could be sci-fi, whatever that you've read. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then to music, um, this is something different and everyone always usually gets a smile on their face. I find that music tells a lot about a person's personality, um, whether it's classical, whether it's metal, whether it's electronica, whatever it may be, uh, any music that you find yourself listening to that, you know, either you're working or traveling that you really like. So books and music, what do you got? Sure. Okay. Books that I've, uh, books that I've read recently that I enjoyed. Um, I enjoyed six wakes, uh, by Mo Lafferty. Um, and, uh, and that's, that was pretty good. It's a, you know, I, I, I enjoy sci-fi. So, um, it's kind of like you know, a, just a good solid sci-fi story about um, uh, when you die, you come back as a, a clone of yourself with all your memories intact, mm. um, and uh, and just a very cool um, like murder mystery tied into that. Um, and what else have I read recently? Uh, I read uh, EXO by Fonda Lee. Um, that was also good. Um, you know, it's one of those where it's like um uh earth and alternate reality um and uh and i enjoy I, you know for me sci-fi has always been about like escapism i don't want to read about um like the world as it is um i can observe the world as it is um i enjoy a little bit of dystopian sci-fi um although i must admit dystopian sci-fi can get a little depressing it's also uh, becoming a little bit more like reality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I've, I've sort of tended towards uh, towards a, um, not not avoiding dystopian sci-fi, but uh, yeah, when when I do read it, I'm just like, oh gosh, I really hope that's not the not the future that we're gonna we're gonna end up in. Um, like I read uh, Dust um, and Wool um, uh, by uh, what's his name, Yu Hao. And man, that 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 trilogy just like it just depressed me. I was like, oh, I really, really hope that is not the world that we're gonna end up in. Um, and uh, yeah, like in terms of music, I'm um, so I listen to a lot of um, 
I listen to a lot of uh, uh, sort of trip hop, acid jazz, um, uh, you know, sort of like chilled house. Chilled house is probably the main thing I listen to when I'm working, um, just to have sort of background music on. Uh, yeah, that's sort of <laughs> that's what I listen to and what I read. Love it. A little Cafe Del Mar. Um, so if you could tell people where, if they want to find out more about Monero, obviously you guys have a site, um, but if there's any place that other you know, people can find out more about Monero, get involved, you know, feel free to let them know now. Yeah, so um, Monero is an open source project that basically lives and dies by the people that contribute to it. So I always encourage people to, to try and figure out how to get involved. Um, the, the first protocol is getmonero.org. For following what happens, there's the Ad Monero account on Twitter. Um, and uh, in terms of like pitching up and uh, and figuring out like how how you can be uh, useful to the project, how you can help out, you don't need to be a developer. Of course, developers are are very welcome. Um, but if you go to um, the getmonero.org website uh, under the community, there's a hangout section. Um, and uh, the the hangout section will link you to um, the uh, or, or list the RSC channels and also link you to Slack and Mattermost and Tiger and so on. And uh, Slack and Mattermost all um, uh, back up onto RSC, so you can use those as a as a starting point. Um, and uh, and it's it's a fantastic community. Uh, the Monero subreddit as well is also great for interacting with people and figuring things out. Amazing. Well, this was Rick at Monero, and I loved this conversation because I've learned a lot. And I always encourage people, and I've been trying to encourage people more publicly, that if you're not learning and if you're not trying to expand your horizons aside for some of the more notable coins out there and more notable projects out there, then you're missing out because there are things that are happening that are super important. And the notion of privacy is going to become more prevalent as we continue to evolve. And we're starting to see that play out in society already. So Rick, really love this conversation. Hopefully you can come back. Uh, everyone check out Monero, get involved, and we'll be talking to you soon. Take care. Cool. Thanks so much for having me. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on base layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space in the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.